We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm B. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Good day to you, Key. Good day to you, V. I really miss us uh, recording in person. Yeah, I do too. It was a lot easier on my end. Oh, cry me a river. No. <laughs> no, it's uh, a, going to be a hot day today. I think it's going to, you know, be eyebrow frying hot today. That's not good. That's not good at all. It's already 73 degrees and it's not even 9 a.m. I guess that's what happens when you live in the South during the summertime. That's what happens. You would think we're at the equator already. You would think. So... What are we not talking about today? So, are we, let me see. So, we're in the south, and it's hot. Mm-hmm. So, like, up north, it should be cold, right? You would think. So, what's, like, the most northmost state in the U.S.? I don't know. I have a friend. I have to, Alaska. <laughs> no. Alaska. Okay. So never say that again. <laughs> <laughs> Alaska, you say. Huh. Interesting. Because Alaska should be part of Canada, but it's not. That's because... I don't know. I guess we bought it. I mean, why why would we want to buy land so far away? But, hey. Yeah, it is beyond me for sure. And it's huge. It's very expansive. Yeah, it's bigger than Texas, right? I don't know. It's bigger than a lot of things. It's huge. Interesting. Well, like, I always thought Alaska was full of, like, you know, beautiful nature and bears and ice ice and, like, you know, the aurora borealis. But is there anything that we shouldn't talk about in Alaska? I guess we should make Alaska our number two in our United States of Crime series. Because there's been some wild things happening in Alaska. You don't say. I don't say. Well, without further ado, Key, let's start number two in the United States of Crime. All right. So, are we flipping the coin to see who goes first? I think because of your awful joke, you should tell a <laughs> to redeem yourself. Was my joke that bad? Oh, no. I'll do oh, better no. next episode. <laughs> I'll do better next episode. All right. All right. You have your word on it. Well, gather around, children. It's time for a tale of crime. My story today is about a recently discovered serial killer named Israel Keys and he's thought to possibly be one of the most prolific serial killers because of how his style of killing was but 
there's only been three confirmed deaths attributed to him. And we'll get into that more toward the end of the story. But the one I'm really going to focus on is the one that happened in Alaska, of course. So, Israel Keys was born in Cove, Utah, January 7, 1978. He was the second of 10 children born to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keys. Again, with the 10 children. I mean, people, it seems like having a lot of children is really pushing the odds toward one of them being a serial killer. Yeah, that's a lot of heads to raise and keep up with. Yeah, one of our other stories, somebody was like the sibling of a ton of kids. Anywho, Israel and his siblings were homeschooled, and when uh, Keyes was between the ages of about three to five years old, his family moved to Colville, Washington, um, and they lived in a one-room cabin without electricity or running water. Could you imagine? Twelve people in a one-room cabin. With no uh, electricity or water. Jeez, man. And this was like in the early 80s. Oh my goodness. So uh, when he was a child, Keys and his family attended the Ark, uh, which is a church that taught Christian identity. And for those who are not aware, Christian identity, also known as identity Christianity, is a racist, anti-Semitic, and white supremacist interpretation of Christianity, which holds the views that only Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Nordic, Aryan people, and those of kindred blood are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and hence the descendants of the ancient Israelites. However, Keyes denounced the Christian identity sometime in his teen years and considered himself atheist. Now, that, you know, really upset his parents. His, his father did not, um, like, that fractured the relationship between him and his father, but uh, him and his mother still had a close relationship, which I think is pretty normal. Like, you know, usually if you do something to anger your parents it's usually like the mom that comes back around and be like oh I still love you baby right right so growing up Keys broke into neighborhood homes to steal guns he loved hunting and torturing animals Keys has said um, quote I've known since I was 14 that there were things that I thought were normal and okay that nobody else seemed to think were normal and okay Keyes served in the U.S. Army from 1998 to 2001. Records indicate he was awarded the following military decorations, service medals, and awards, which actually were, you know, quite a few. He got the Army Achievement Medal, Army Service Ribbon, National Defense Service Medal, Marksman Badge with Rifle Bar, Expert Infantryman Badge, and Air Assault Badge. Nice, nice. Now, uh, former Army friends have stated that he had a quiet demeanor and he typically kept him kept to himself, but he drank heavily, consuming entire bottles of wild turkey bourbon on the weekends and was also heavily into the music group Insane Clown Posse. 
Have you ever listened I, to any of their music? He's an ICP fan? He was. He even had several posters uh, hanging in his barracks. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, he should have been suspect at that point. <laughs> no, no, no offense to any ICP fans. So, Keyes was honorably discharged from Fort Lewis on July 8th 2001 at the rank of specialist there's no mention of any troubles or behavioral problems except a DUI during his time in service Keys eventually moved to Alaska and in 2007 started a construction business there called Keys Construction he worked as a handyman contractor and construction worker now Keyes admitted to investigators that he killed many people over the years, but his last victim was Samantha Koenig, a coffee booth employee in Anchorage, Alaska. And now we're going to get into the story of how this went down. So, prior to February 1st, 2012, Keyes selected the Common Grounds coffee stand located on Tudor Road for the site of the abduction. He did this after considering other coffee stands, but chose Common Grounds because of its location and because it was open later than other coffee stands. Now, Keyes had never met or seen Samantha Koenig before. He approached the coffee stand just prior to closing time, wearing a ski mask, which for February in Alaska would not be weird. No, not normal at all. And he ordered a coffee. Samantha made the coffee and handed it to Keys. He then pulled a gun out and demanded money. Samantha complied, but then Keys forced himself inside the coffee stand, tied Samantha's hands with zip ties. He asked where her car was, and she told him that she did not have a vehicle. Keys then forcibly walked her out of the coffee stand toward Tudor Road. Now, at some point, Samantha broke free from Keys and tried to run away, but he chased her and tackled her to the ground. He put one arm around her and pointed a gun at her body with the other hand, telling her that she needed to cooperate and that the gun had very quiet ammo and she should not do anything to make him kill her. They walked across Tudor Road into the parking lot between the IHOP and Dairy Queen, where Keyes' white truck was parked. He had previously prepared the truck for the abduction by taking the mounted toolbox off the bed of the truck, as well as removing the license plates. Keyes then bound Samantha in the truck and drove away. So... If anyone does not know, you never let a person take you to a second site. Never, ever, ever. Because then they're really going to kill you. Mm -hmm. But anyway, like poor Samantha, she was only 18 years old. Like, you know, she was working at this coffee stand that was open super late at night. She's the only person like, you know, it's one of those like booths where you can either walk up or drive up. So they're really small. Yeah. And, you know, this end up happened to her, like, just by happenstance, which is, is terrible. Like, it is awful. 
So if you're ever in a situation, fight until you can't fight no more. Don't let them get you in a vehicle to take you to a second location. It's really going to go downhill from there. But I can uh, understand like he had already zip tied her hands before he even got her out the coffee place. So it's like she was really just not even, you know, had the ability to do anything at that point other than try to run, which she did. And it's it's probably really hard to run with your hands tied behind your back because you can't like get that pump in action for momentum. Mm -mm. So... Keys drove around explaining to Samantha that this was a kidnapping for ransom. Samantha told him that her family did not have much money and that he wasn't likely to get much in ransom. But Keys explained that they will raise the money for ransom by seeking the public's help. He convinced Samantha that if she cooperated, she would be returned to her family unharmed. Samantha believed him and tried to talk to him in an effort to convince him to release her. At some point on the drive, Keyes realized that Samantha did not have her cell phone, which was necessary for his plan to demand ransom by sending a text from her phone. So they had to drive back to Common Ground's coffee shop or booth, and he had to re-enter the coffee stand, leaving Samantha bound in his truck. He retrieved the cell phone and got back in the truck and drove away. Keys drove to another part of town where he sent two texts from Samantha's phone. The first one was to Samantha's boyfriend, and the second was to the owner of Common Grounds. The texts made it appear that Samantha just had a bad day and was leaving town for the weekend. He then took the battery out of Samantha's phone. Keys asked for Samantha's debit card, and she told him that she shared a bank account with her boyfriend and that his ATM card was in the truck that they shared. Samantha told Keys where her house was and gave him the PIN number to the ATM card. Keys put Samantha in the shed in front of his house, bound her, turned up the radio in the shed so no one would hear her if she screamed. And he also told her he had a police scanner and would know if she attempted to alert the neighbors. Now, Keys drove to Samantha's house, retrieved the ATM card from the unlocked truck. While he was at Samantha's house, he was confronted by her boyfriend, who yelled at him, and then went back in the house to get help. Keys ran back to his truck and left the area before he could be found. He drove to the ATM to test the PIN number that Samantha had given him, and then he returned to the shed. Now, Keys then sexually assaulted Samantha and asphyxiated her. He left her in the shed and went back inside the house where he packed for a pre-planned cruise that he was taking from New Orleans with his girlfriend and their daughter. He left early that morning, February 2nd, for the cruise. So, he assaulted her strangled her and then left her in a shed in front of his house and they did not return to Anchorage until February 17th. Oh my goodness. 
So, after he returned, he began to prepare a ransom note that demanded money to be placed in the account connected with the ATM card. He went to the shed to retrieve Samantha's body, taking steps to make it appear like she was still alive, and took a Polaroid picture of her tied up. Now, this is going to be rough. He sold her eyelids open so that her eyes would be open in the picture. This guy is a freaking maniac. And, of course, she was frozen. It was February in Alaska. She had been outside for, like, 15 days, like two weeks. So there was probably zero decomposition. And he was smart enough to do it with a Polaroid, so it wasn't going to be, like, a super crisp, clear, like, picture like you would take with a cell phone. Right, right. So, the photo showed Keyes' arm holding the Anchorage Daily newspaper from February 13th. He photocopied the photo using a manual typewriter he had purchased, typed the ransom demand for $30,000 on the back of the photo. After preparing the note and the photo, he placed it in Connors Bog Park under a memorial flyer of a dog named Albert. Then, using Samantha's cell phone, he texted her boyfriend again and said that the ransom note was under Albert in Connors Bog Park. The note was recovered by APD, so Alaska Police Department. And in the following days... Keys dismembered Samantha's body and drove out to Matanuska Lake where he cut a hole in the ice and put her body in the lake. This guy is crazy. Yes. Meanwhile, Samantha's father, James Koenig, deposited reward money, which had been generously donated by members of the community, into the account connected with Samantha's ATM card. So, like you said, you know, the community rallied around, got the money, and it was deposited into her account. The plan was to attempt to catch the perpetrator by tracking any withdrawals. Now, ATM withdrawals were made in Anchorage, then Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Authorities were able to determine that the perpetrator of these withdrawals was driving a white Ford Focus. The FBI and the Texas Rangers tracked the ATM withdrawals as they occurred. Ultimately, Corporal Brian Henry of the Texas Highway Patrol pulled over a white Ford Focus matching the description. Thank you, Corporal Brian Henry for being on your job, being aware, being alert, because it's like a white Ford Focus in Texas. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's like, it's such a non-standout car. Like it's it's nothing flashy, it's nothing, you know, 
that would really draw your attention. He really had to like have this at the front of his mind to be like, okay, if I see any white four focus. Right, exactly. So Keys was driving. Henry, along with Texas Ranger Steve Rayburn, obtained enough information during the traffic stop to search the Ford Focus. Samantha's cell phone was found in the car. The ATM card was found in Keys' wallet. So that's how he ultimately got caught, was killing uh, Samantha and going to a- from ATM to ATM. Now, it did take them a while because, like, you know, he was doing it in different states and he was traveling by car with cash. So, you know, it was harder to kind of pinpoint, right. Pinpoint like where he would go to next. It's not like he was going like around Alaska and getting it from ATMs. Now, as a serial killer, keys targeted victims who happened to cross his path rather than sticking to a specific profile. He would often wait to accost people in places like parks, cemeteries, or campgrounds. Not much to choose from, in a manner of speaking, he confessed to law enforcement about his methods, but there's also no witness, really. There's no one else around. Keys' serial killing incorporated detailed planning. He crisscrossed the country to hide caches of murder equipment that consisted of guns, ammo, and chemicals for the destruction of bodies. When he wanted to kill, he would dig up a cache. So, um, like, not all of the caches have been found. Like, he he admitted a lot of these things in uh, the police interview. And, you know, he said that he would bury these caches in random places, and if, like, the mood to kill would strike, he would, like, go to a place, dig one up, and then, like, find a victim who just kind of crossed his path and he could kill him. So, according to Keyes, his first planned attack took place in Oregon in 1997 or 1998. He abducted a teen girl, then raped her. His intent was to murder her, but she convinced him to leave, to let her leave. I wasn't violent enough, Keyes told investigators of the crime. I made up my mind I was never going to let that happen again. Keyes spoke of killing, quote, less than a dozen people. And while in jail, he used his own blood to draw 12 skulls, which may represent 11 victims and Keyes himself. In 2020, an FBI agent told 48 Hours, we believe that 11 is the total number of victims, yet only three of Keyes' victims have been definitely identified. Like I said, there's uh, Samantha Koenig and a married couple, Bill and Lorraine Courier from Vermont. So for the Courier's murders, he flew to Chicago where he rented a car drove a thousand miles to Vermont. Then he used one of the kill kits he had hidden two years earlier to perform the murders. And that was kind of his MO. He would fly to a place, rent a car, and then drive like someplace like so far away, he really wouldn't be connected to it. Then he would drive back to that same airport and fly back out. 
the guy was truly insane because, like, what's the purpose in all that? To not really leave a trail, because if you fly into Atlanta, rent a car, and then drive up to Kentucky, murder some people, drive back to Atlanta, then fly back out of Atlanta, that kind of makes it seem like you were there in Atlanta the whole time. Like, you know, that's kind of like what people would infer. Like, you know, if you flew out of Kentucky, then that would be like a lot more suspicious. Like that would put you closer to the scene of the crime. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's what he did. He would usually like fly to a place, drive super far away, dig up a cash, kill someone, drive back to the airport, fly back to Alaska. He also said that he intended to leave Alaska and travel through the storm-ravaged regions to find new victims while working as a contractor. And he dreamed of later building a house where he could imprison his victims. So, once Keys was called, like I said, he did tell investigators a lot of information because, you know, he knew the jig was up, but he wasn't going to give his secrets away without a bargain. He insisted on the death penalty within one year and for the details of his crime to be kept out of the media for the sake of his child. Which... I feel like, you know, he knows that's impossible pretty much. But as an investigator, I would have been like, yep, we can give you the death penalty in three weeks if you just come on and tell us everything. Yeah, yeah. Give like, us I all the details. lied through my teeth. Like, uh-huh. Look, this judge just signed a paper. I would, we, got, we got it going. The electric chair's warming up right now. Just tell us everybody you killed and let's get it going. <laughs> like, the cheers warming up. <laughs> right. While in custody, Keyes expressed his desire to prevent his daughter from suffering due to his actions. He said, quote, I want my kid to have a chance to grow up. You know, she's in a safe place now and she's not going to see any of this. I want her to have a chance to grow up and not have all this hanging over her head. Which... You know, considering everything, that's kind of what happens to kids of serial killers. Like, once all the information comes out, they're, like, thrust into the spotlight that they did not want for, like, crimes that are so heinous. And it's, like, it's very unfair that they have to be tied to it. So I understand why he was saying that, but it just seems very like illogical like that's never going to happen that you know you can separate your whole family from all of this no uh -uh. however it's no like i could not find the child's name not a picture i know that her mother is um like an indigenous female because they lived on a reservation in alaska but other than that, it's like very little information to connect her. So I guess only people who like actually know her would know who her father was. And it's like they did, the police did a very good job of keeping her specific information 
out other than the fact that he had a daughter like there's no mention of her name her whereabouts like none of that and I guess it would probably be easy for her mother to change her last name and you know let her not have to suffer the consequences of what he did yeah that's very nice yeah well hopefully that's what she did you know or maybe her last name wasn't keys to begin with who knows but keys never made it to trial while being held in jail at the anchorage correctional complex keys died by suicide on december 2nd 2012 via self-inflicted wrist cuts and strangulation a suicide note found under his body consisted of an ode to murder and drawings of 11 skulls and one pentagram which had been drawn in blood um like i was like mentioned earlier and that was found underneath his jail cell bed the fbi still believed that 11 is the total number of victims but there were no clues about the other possible victims there were cases that they think he may have been linked to and they are still currently investigating um but because of the way he moved he didn't like you know he buried stuff so he didn't have to like buy ammo he didn't have to buy anything that he needed so there's like literally no trace of where he may have been or you know to connect him to certain crimes because it's like he's not leaving a paper trail yeah, guy was a ghost. Yeah, it's like, okay, I can buy 30 guns in Alaska and hide them all over the U.S. as I'm making these, like, you know, trips, my little murder trips. I can, like, stop in a random place, bury one, and, you know, the only paper trail is the day I bought all these guns. So there are some cases that they do like solidly believe he was involved in, like based on the information that they told that he told them during his um, interviews, but or, you know, interrogations, but he could never like give specific names. He, he was like really vague, but he could give like kind of generalized dates, whether it was male or female and the state that it was in. But that right there is Israel Keys, a very underpublicized serial killer. Like he was just found out in 2012. There is a lot of information, like his uh, police interviews are online. It's very unsettling the way he talks. Like is he's very nonchalant about all the details that he gives. But he's not like a, you know, a BTK or Ted Bundy where it's like so much stuff has just been like written and reported about him. Yeah. Oh, that is awful. I really hate that that poor server had to be involved in that and be part of his ransom scheme. It was a lot of, that was a lot of hiccups in that one like in that that's, beginning right that's how he ultimately got caught because he had even said that like it was such a um spur of the moment type deal like he did not plan it out as good as he normally did and that's kind of what 
drove him to get caught because like of course there were cameras in the coffee booth yeah but and even though he had like staked it out and determined that that would be like the best coffee booth he just like did not plan it the way he normally planned things like with the couriers you know he had been to Vermont he like drove around neighborhoods he tried to find like you know a nice quiet place a house that the layout he would kind of be familiar with without having to like go into it first and he was able to like get into their house I think through the garage then the inside door was unlocked and he like accosted them while they were in bed killed the husband really quickly and then assaulted the wife and ultimately ended up killing her too like I think after like a day or so then he buried them in a barn which ended up being torn down so their bodies were never even recovered that's insane man right he he was definitely definitely crazy and it's it's so strange that like he's just not one of those serial killers that get a lot of information like you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, like you say Dahmer and everybody knows who you're talking about. Right, right. Like you say, you say Bundy. Like, right. And they'd be like, keep my keys, my car keys. Like <laughs> Yeah, it's it's strange how like, you know, some just pick up the are picked up by the media and some are not. Yeah, it is that is pretty crazy how that happens. Right. But like pretty much any kind of unsolved disappearance or murder they're like kind of now it's like oh maybe Israel Keys did this one but like that's kind of like a like an underlying theory now like a lot of things that have happened that they can't solve it's like a lot of um, like you know online like crime people like us are like, oh, maybe this was an Israel Keys victim because it's so random and, you know. Yeah, it, it kind of matches his his wicked patterns. Right. Well, Key, thank you for finding keys for us and enlightening us on how disturbing and sporadic he was. And my my murderer of question also has some parallels with keys and you'll hear about those as we go along Mm. i'm ready So, so we are going to talk about michael silka michael silka grew up in hoffman estates illinois from an early age he had a love of firearms and the outdoors in 1975 Silka and another juvenile were caught trying to steal camping gear and weapons from a Des Plaines shopping sporting goods store. That same year, Silka and his brother Steve ran away from high school to a Canadian to the Canadian wilderness, returning when they depleted their provisions. And about four months later, before graduating from high school, Silka was arrested for carrying carrying an antique muzzle-loading rifle reminiscent of the weapons used by early mountain men through a park and the suburb. He was arrested again later that year for doing the same thing, 
and had to pay a $100 fine. So they gave it back to him? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, the same, I, same gun. I was about to say, I don't see you having two antique front-loaded muzzles. Yeah, right. See, I don't know why they give it back to him. He's just like yeah. a 17-year-old high schooler. They can't answer for whatever. I guess it was the, I guess it was the 70s. So shortly after that, um, Silka enlisted. He enlisted in the U.S. Army at the advice of a longtime neighbor, Foreman Hurst. Silka loved the outdoors. That was his number one ambition, to be, to be outside exploring nature. In 1981, he was stationed at Fort Wainwright, located on the east side of Fairbanks, Alaska, until his discharge. Until he is discharged the same year. So he was only in the U.S. Army about four years. But four during that, years? Yeah, about four years, yeah. I thought you said he was discharged the same year. Yeah, so 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 shortly after he graduated high school in 77, he he joined the Army. And then oh, 1981, okay. when, he, when he was stationed in Fort Wainwright, he was discharged later that year. Oh, okay, I see. I got you now. But um, but during that four-year period, though, his records show that he was an expert marksman with an M16 and grenade launcher while in basic. But during his, during his stay at Fort Rainwright, he had several run-ins with military police, including an assault charge and arrest for discharging a firearm in the barracks. After his discharge from the Army, Silka returned to Hoffman Estates and worked a number of jobs, mainly in construction work. In November 1982, he was stopped for a minor traffic violation, and an officer noticed four weapons in the back seat: a 44 caliber revolver, a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol, and two knives. Silka was charged for for weapons possession, and upon arriving to the police station, Mike. Uh, Silka refused to exit the squad car, which led to an additional charge of resisting arrest. Oh, Lord. Like, <laughs> sir, you're already arrested. Don't make it I, any harder on yourself. I, Michael, you are not Rosa Parks. You cannot you cannot not say you're not going to leave your seat and you're in the cop car already. Right. I'm surprised they didn't just drag him by, by the ankles. <laughs> right. They gave the boy another charge. A couple months later in July... Soko was arrested on another weapons violation after a South Barrington officer stopped him for speeding. That 22 caliber rifle was found in his back seat. He made several court appearances, the last one on October 26th, but then he skipped bond and fled to Alaska. A warrant for his arrest was issued on December 20th. According to his younger brother, Frank, Soka had been working in Alaska for some time, although he did not know what job his brother had. A bearded 25-year-old drifter, Silka was first seen in Alaska in the Chena Ridge section of Fairbanks. On April 29, 1984, police had questioned Silka about the fresh blood and snow-covered mound at his cabin. At the time, Alaska State Troopers were under the impression that they were investigating whether Silka himself had been killed, and then Silka walked out of his shed and explained that the blood was from a moose hide. Hmm. Sketchy. <laughs> I mean, it's a good excuse when you're out when you're out somewhere like that. 
Oh yeah, it was just a moose. That's gonna be my go-to um, reply now. If anything happened, it, it was a moose. It was a moose. Just blame it on the moose. Mm-hmm. However, Silka's neighbor, Roger Culp, had gone missing the day before. Witnesses reported that Silka and Culp went into Silka's cabin, later heard as many as eight gunshots, and witnesses did not report the incident immediately because I guess they just knew Silka's behaviors of having guns and shooting whenever. But when troopers obtained the new information, they returned to the cabin on May 8th with a search warrant, but Silka was gone. Could you believe that? I can. (laughs) Red spots on the ground, by this point free of snow, were found to be human blood. Silk was wanted for questioning and Culp's disappearance, but troopers had no leads to his whereabouts. Alright, so the next time he was seen was May 14th, 1984. So just probably two or three weeks after that first time he was questioning. At the end of Alaska Route 2, which is an 150-mile, 240-kilometer dirt road in Manly Hot Springs, a tiny mining town of about 70 people located west of Fairbanks and deep in the interior of Alaska. He was driving a battered brown and white 1974 Dodge Monaco filled with camping equipment and an aluminum canoe mounted on the roof. Unseen by villagers, among the equipment were guns and ammo. According to one resident, Silka told the villagers that he planned to settle in the area. Silka described himself as a mountain man. The villagers were impressed by Silka's common sense of the wilderness and survival, as well as his marksmanship. He was often seen hanging around a boat landing on the Tanana River only three miles, five kilometers, outside of town. Silka set up a tent at the boat landing and was frequently seen paddling his canoe in the Tanana. On Thursday, March 17th, between 2 and 4, six villagers went to the boat landing, all of whom disappeared. The disappearances were not noted by the, by the locals until the following day, at which point they contacted Alaska State Troopers and Fairbanks on on the next uh, night of the 18th. The wife of one of the missing men gave Trooper Silka's license plate number, and police then checked and learned he was wanted for investigation for the other murder of Culp. Two helicopters, three planes, and the Trooper's special emergency reaction team were sent to Manly at 2 a.m. Saturday morning, the 19th. At the boat landing, Troopers found blood, believed to be human, and used cartridge casings. A huge helicopter sweep for Ahsoka along the Santa began at 2. And at this time of the year in Alaska, it was still daylight. So search proceeded without hindrance. By late hours of the same day, Ahsoka was found upstream about 25 miles, 40 kilometers, southeast of Manly, and an unnamed tributary of the Zitziana River near his own canoe and a motorized boat belonging to one of the victims, Fred Burke. Troopers, Troopers offered 
Silka a chance to surrender. Instead, Silka stepped behind a tree to take cover and fired a 30 cal rifle at one of the airborne helicopters. Oh, Lord. And he, he shot through the windshield, hitting hitting um, one of the troopers in the face. What? In the helicopter? In the helicopter. Sweet gracious. So, so he he killed Trooper Troy Duncan and injured Captain Donald Lawrence. Mm, Trooper Trooper Jeff Hall returned fire with an M16, firing a burst from the moving helicopter. Five shots struck Silka and killed him. Troopers at the shootout said it was reminiscent of the combat in Vietnam War. A memorial service was held at the boat landing on Sunday, May 20th. Silka was cremated and his ashes were buried in the Sitka National Cemetery in Alaska at his father's request. By June 23, 1984, four, four of the bodies, those of Burke, Lyman, Lyman Klein, Dan, uh, Dale Majowski, and Larry Joe McVie had been recovered from the Tanana River. Burke's Man. body... Yeah, it was awful. Burke's body was discovered by his wife about 75 miles, 120 kilometers downstream from the, from the scene of the killings. For months, families and friends of the victims searched the bush-choked banks of the Tanana. Troopers believe that Soka had been in Alaska for about a month. It's believed he dumped the bodies of the victims in Tanana in hopes that they would not be found. The Tanana is about a mile wide and 70 to 80 feet, 21 to 24 meters deep. And as much and as the water remains near freezing temperatures, the glacier-fed river is steadily settled and bodies are likely to remain below the surface. The motives of Silka's actions remain unclear. So, his victims were Fred Burke, Albert Hagen, Joyce Klein, Lyman Klein, Marshall Klein. Joyce Klein was the wife of Lyman, who was four months pregnant. Uh, Marshall Klein was their two-year-old son. Del, Del Majowski, Larry Joe McVie, Roger Klope, and Trooper Troy Duncan. That's terrible. Yeah. There is no rhyme or reason for Silka's spree. Except for the trooper. He just, I guess, wanted just to have a shootout and he actually hit, killed someone. I still can't believe he shot at a helicopter and was able to kill someone. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So I guess he really was a good marksman. Yeah. Darn, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And oh man, Alaska, how I thought so highly of you at first. <laughs> now your reality bubble has been burst. Like when you went to the Alamo. Oh my gosh. Don't even, <laughs> don't even get me started. I don't I don't want to remember the Alamo. 
unfortunately, it's always going to be with you now. Mm. So that was quite an interesting story. And they did have a lot of parallels, like, you know, the love for, for hunting and the uh, military service and just like kind of randomness of it all. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I, f- I, f- I feel like for Silka, because he was, cause, cause, like, he, 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 um, he was camped out at the Tanana, I guess in his mind, he was like, well, this is my, um, this is my area, and anyone that comes in is a threat, so I'll be the predator, you know, they're coming into my home and stuff like that, be- because he wanted to be a mountain man, I guess, but he was on, like, public property, so, whatever. Man. So, how are we going to bring this up? Well, it's almost it's almost August. And so, I mean, summer's coming to a close. It is still... Ooh, happy about that. It's still COVID season, so schools will be opening, but not really. I'm not really sure how that's going. It's... From all accounts I've seen, it looks like it's going terribly. Yeah. It really, really is a hindrance for, like, new high school goers and then the, the new college uh, college freshmen. Man, this is certainly a time to be in academics. Yes. No, it's terrible because it's like, okay... Anyone who is making up these school plans is as if they don't know kids because you can put up all the barriers around their desk. They're still going to touch each other. Mm -hmm. Kids are gross. They're so they're like little incubators. They share everything with each other. They touch. They do gross stuff like lick their hands and chase you around with it. This is going to be a mess pure mess yeah you would you would think they don't you would think they do not know they've never met a child before right so good luck to all the parents and teachers for this next school year my thoughts and prayers are with you (laughs) so that that really kind of like ticked us up a tiny bit and then it brought us right back down yeah Good job, V. I appreciate it. Yeah, I do my best. So, I guess it's all on my shoulders for As this always. one. Um, okay, so I've joined the wonderful world of quad roller skating. Oh, hey, now. I refuse to say what my Instagram is because it's still a lot of bad videos of me. So once I get really good, then I'll say it. So are you going to graduate to inline skates ever? I used to have inline skates like way like before you were even born, like when your two oldest siblings were really young. I used to have inline skates and I was really good like skating on those. But that's been years ago, seeing as how you're damn near 30 
Yeah, yeah, like I guess near if you're considering five years. I guess yeah. that is near. Closest than I've ever been, I guess. Yeah, closest that you've ever been. Mm-hmm. Shoot, that was even before uh Ro was born. So you know that's been it's been a while. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I used to inline skate like a lot when kids could go outside and be kids. But where a kid could be a kid. No, that's a uh, totally different place. That's not outside. Oh. But uh, yeah, so it's fun. The online community is supportive. And I just got my new rubber stops because the ones that come on skates, like stock skates when you buy them, are plastic and they wear down super quick. And I'm ready. I got my neon green wheels on there already. So I'm ready to put my stops on there so I can have a little more control and maybe learn how to do some tricks. There you go. That I, I'll, that I would pay to see. One day. One day. I still got to learn how to like balance better. Like, you know, it's still kind of a it's an odd sensation, so you have to like really have like core engagement and lots of things going on. And people online make it look so easy. Oh yeah, they make it look they make it look incredibly easy. Yeah, like I have like the full setup, like the knee pads, elbow pads, wrist brace pads. Like it's uh, it's going down. I was watching a Dent May music video. And he was he was on skates, and then his two um, female dancers were on skates, and they were just dancing and twirling and had signs. And I was like, this. I was like, it's not that easy. They make it look like it's like as simple as walking. It's it's not. It's crazy. It really isn't. Like the power you have to have to like only roll your skates like a couple millimeters, like backwards and forwards, without you wobbling is ridiculous like you know people be like kind of like scissoring their legs but they're not really moving anywhere that takes real body control so kudos to them and there's like so many great great people on uh instagram like great skaters and You know, usually people kind of do their tricks and stuff in little videos, but there's a lot of people who have, like, YouTubes that explain even down to the basics. So it's a very good community, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Hopefully I will be able to get good enough to share my journey because right now I don't need anybody laughing at me. (laughs) There you go. So, number two in United States of Crime, Alaska. It was an emotional roller coaster. It sure was. And it was an unfortunate end for a lot of innocent people. Very much so. And it's, I just don't understand how people can just kill someone with no thought of the repercussions that it's going to have on their family like 
you know, these people are just like snatched away from people that love them. Their lives is cut short. I mean, these people could have been the next, you know, Jeff Bezos or something. Like they could have had great, great things in store. And now we'll never know because of some selfish bag of crap who just killed them for whatever reason in their mind they thought was valid. Yeah, that's, that's terrible. And no matter where you go, all 50 states of crime, there's going to be people like this. Yes, there is. But I, I feel like our United States of crime isn't always going to be killers. Maybe there'll be you know, person leaving balloons tied to random people's doorknobs scares the neighborhood. A balloon tied to someone's doorknob? I'm um, just an saying. An it reference? Not necessarily an it reference, like, but, you know, maybe. Is it, is it or IT? It's it. It. It's, it should be pronounced it? Yes. Mm. Okay. Have you not seen the original It movie? That's been a long time. I remember always looking at the v- VHS um, box art of it. Yeah, that, that one was terrifying. Was I, I've never watched the the updated ones. That one was be- was terrifying enough. Yeah, just the updated ones just had better effects. That's all. Yeah. Well, I feel like this. What is this episode 27? Eight. Eight? Wow. It's flying by. It is. It is. Well, it's a wrap for 28 then. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Key. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. So long. Bye.